the TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at TNTradio.live. Cutting through the clutter, this is the Misty Winston Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, hey there, and welcome to the Misty Winston Show right here on today's News Talk. And hey, Ann Dolores might want some gear too. There's stuff for her there uh, on the TNT Radio Shop, so uh, get yourself your your furry friends uh, some gear, and also Aunt Dolores, because we don't want to leave her out. Okay, um, so first of all, uh, a quick heads up about what we have coming up this week. Fantastic week lined up. It kind of ended up being like a libertarian fiesta. Um, there's a lot of libertarians scheduled for this week. Not intentional, but hey, we'll take it. Um, so Monday, today, we have Kyle Anslone. You know him, you love him. Uh, Tuesday, Connor Freeman. Wednesday, my friend Sarah Higdon. Uh, she's been on the show, I think, once or twice before. She does really great work on, um, she's a trans woman, and she she does really great work on protecting kids from uh, the medical industry and women's sports and all of that stuff. So I'm excited to hear uh, what she's going to be working on through the new year. Uh, Thursday, we have Dave Benner from the Libertarian Party. And then Friday, which, by the way, again, is my birthday. I'm very excited. Uh, my pal Elizabeth Lee Voss from uh, Consortium News will be here. So a fantastic week lined up. Very pumped about it. Um, uh, so definitely tune in right here on TNT. Um, another quick reminder, we um, I'm going to keep saying it. I'm sorry if it is uh, very repetitive, but it needs to be said over and over again. We need as much help as humanly possible. Uh, Julian Assange, uh, founder of WikiLeaks, journalist and publisher, is facing two new court dates in February. Uh, they will be taking place at the, uh, uh, the High Court in London on February 20th and 21st. Uh, these court dates are essentially this. Uh, it'll be a request for an appeal or I'm sorry, an appeal. Uh, <laughs> It's so convoluted. So they requested an appeal. That request was denied. So they are appealing that denial, if that makes sense. I know it's a little slippery there, but uh, it's it's the court system. What do you expect? Very convoluted. Um, so this will be heard. The um, uh, uh, appeal will be heard in front of two new judges. It will not be in front of the same judge that just recently denied uh, that request for appeal. Um, uh, apparently, it's supposed to be public. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many seats will be permitted. I'm not sure exactly who will be permitted in there. I'm sure they will allow some spots for family. Hopefully, they will allow some media access. Um, but for sure, there is going to be massive events taking place outside of the Royal Court, High Court of Justice um, in London. So if you are anywhere near, anywhere near London whatsoever, on February 20th and 21st, you have plenty of time, request days off work, do whatever you need to do, find a babysitter, get somebody to watch your dog, whatever it is, um, and try to make it to the court uh, uh, on that on those two days so that we can have as many bodies. We need to send a message. Uh, and one of the ways that we can do that is just having as many people as humanly possible show up on those days. Now, if you are in the United States and you are unable to make it to London, no worries. Still plenty you can do. Trust me. Um, first of all, a big thing that you can do right now is contact your uh, House representatives. There is a piece of bipartisan legislation. It is called House Resolution 934. Again, House Resolution 934. Um, we need to contact them as often as possible um, and request that uh, your, if your member has not signed on, which I think there's only eight co-signers right now, which is ridiculous. It's absurd that that's the only, uh, that we only have eight. Um, but co uh, contact them, the, the phone number for that. So there is a just general uh, capital switchboard. Super easy. You just call, you tell them where you live. They will direct you to the appropriate uh, phone number. You can also obviously look up your own uh, individual house member and call them directly. Um, I'm sure they have a Washington office 
office and also a home office um, in your district. Um, but if you want just the capital switchboard number, that is 202. 224-3121. Again, 202-224-3121. Um, all you have to do is call. Only takes a couple minutes. Um, almost always you get an answering service of some kind. Uh, every once in a while you'll get some poor intern who's taking messages or whatever. Um, but call and ask them, be polite, but be firm. Ask them to sign on to the bipartisan legislation, House Resolution 934 um, in support of uh, the dropping of the charges against Julian Assange and also the protection of journalistic activities. Um, you can go online and read the actual legislation for yourself if you do so wish. It's not very long. It's pretty brief. It's pretty self-explanatory, uh, pretty cut and dry. It's just, hey, we need to protect journalism. Um, and also we need to drop the charges against Julian Assange and uh, see him freed. So um, certainly call your senators as well. Obviously, if this manages to get some traction in the House, it will then move to the the Senate. And also we just need any and all elected representatives, any and all, everybody, all people. We need people, people, people talking about this, supporting Julian Assange publicly. Um, so call your house representatives first, obviously, because there is legislation that you can push them on, but then also call your senators while you're at it. Only takes another couple of minutes um, and uh, request that they support the freedom of Julian Assange and the protection of press freedom. Um, big deal. Uh, we only have a month and I don't know, whatever. I'm not good at math. 12 days-ish, I guess, um, until those two court dates. And so we need to make as much noise as possible um, up until those days. And then again, if you are anywhere near London, and also I should mention, uh, if you're not in London, there will be events taking place globally um, on the 20th and 21st and the days surrounding those two dates as well. Um, I always recommend that people go to Candles for Assange. It's the number four, both on Facebook and Twitter. Alex Hill does a great job. She kind of collects and compiles all of the global events and then publishes them out from one central location. It makes them a little bit easier for people to find. So if you can't go to London, that's okay. Um, find an event near you or even be an event near you. We need as many people um, out in the streets as humanly possible. Um, okay. Don't forget, you can follow me over on the tweeters at Sarcasm Stardust. Check out the Substack, mistywinston.substack.com. There is a write-up for the guest of the day every day with links and all that good stuff. So you can find, follow, and support their work as well. And if you would like, you can shoot me an email at mistywinston at tntradio.live. Guest idea, show idea. I just had somebody send me a guest idea. Um, I love that. It helps uh, kind of trigger uh, uh, some out-of-the-box thinking. I kind of, I think we all kind of get kind of stuck in a little bubble and you, uh, I'm always looking for people outside of my uh my general view uh, to talk to. So if you have somebody like that, hit me up. I would love to hear about it. Um, so guest idea, show idea, rant, question, whatever, hit me up. Uh, and while you're at it, please give TNT Radio a follow. We're on all the major social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Uh, and you can help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. Getting straight to the facts. Enough with the lies. We need facts. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT. All right. Pope Francis kicked off the week with a condemnation of what he called, quote unquote, war crimes uh, perpetrated against civilians in conflicts such as in Gaza and Ukraine, saying those killed should not be considered, quote unquote, collateral damage. Very interesting. Here with this story, joining me now is TNT News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. Ruckus. All right, Adam. So the Pope has uh, uh, has come out pretty vocally, I guess, uh, against these very obvious war crimes, right? Yeah, he was just walking around, minding his own business, making some comments to a couple people. Now, this is actually a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big speech. I'll get into all of that. But to set the stage for those of you who may not be Catholic, like I'm not Catholic, Misty, I'm pretty sure 
I'm not, I don't think you're, you're like a devout practicing Catholic, but there are a lot of them uh, so that we can understand the power of the Pope, as it were, uh, according to a census, uh, an important annual census or whatever. Uh, we're guessing here that as of the end of 2021, there was the number of baptized Catholics in the world, uh, 1.376 billion. All right. So just want you to understand who or what the Pope is. He's like the most popular, influential TikToker with an audience of a billion people. All right. Basically. <laughs> and uh, this is a big speech that he does annually. Uh, so this was a pretty significant deal that he said this. Uh, what did he say? Well, <laughs> he said some things that's probably going to get him canceled on social media. But no, probably not. Uh, but he said that uh, indiscriminately striking civilians is a war crime because it violates international humanitarian law. No kidding. Uh, Francis, he's 87 years old. He made his comments in a 45-minute address to uh, Vatican-accredited envoys from 184 countries. This speech is sometimes called his, quote-unquote, state-of-the-world speech. In it, he also talked about conflicts in Africa and Asia, migration crises in the United States and Latin America, climate change, and the persecution of Christians, expressing concern that the war between Israel and the Palestinian Islamist group Hamas in the Gaza Strip could spread in the wider Middle East. He called for a, quote, ceasefire on every front, including Lebanon, end quote. That's right. The Pope called for a ceasefire. Uh, he condemned Hamas's October 7th cross-border attack from Gaza into southern Israel as, quote, an atrocious act of, quote, terrorism and extremism, end quote, and renewed a call for the immediate liberation of those still being held by militants in Gaza. In remarks linking the two high-profile conflicts, Francis said modern warfare often does not distinguish between military and civilian objectives. He said, quote, uh, not quote, he said, there is no conflict that does not end up in some way, quote, indiscriminately striking, end quote, the civilian population. Uh, what did he say specifically? Quote, the events in Ukraine and Gaza are clear proof of this. We must not forget that grave violations of international humanitarian law are war crimes and that it is not sufficient to point them out, but also necessary to prevent them. There is a need for greater effort on the part of the international community to defend and implement humanitarian law, which seems to be the only way to ensure the defense of human dignity in situations of warfare, end quote. Aha. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, basically, he said the things that other people are saying, but the other people who say them get in big, big trouble for saying it and get accused of being things that they're probably not, Misty. But here we have the Pope now saying it so what do you think is going to happen with this probably nothing <laughs> unfortunately i mean i wish i could say that the pope has spoken and everybody is going to come to their senses and stop supporting genocide i don't think that that's very likely also i think it's a little bit more difficult to cancel the pope um i feel like he's got a pretty solid uh and very loyal following his tiktok following is pretty solid um yeah i like that you uh, uh compared him to a tiktok influencer i think that speaks to a lot of people these days uh but yeah listen he's not saying anything controversial people are probably going to try to paint him as or paint these statements at least as controversial 
I'm sure that there will be some people who at least make an attempt to, to cancel the Pope. Uh, he, but the, well, he, this is not, it's not a controversial thing. This is not controversial. So what, that's what's very frustrating about this whole situation. We have a lot of people clutching their pearls, pearls over the word genocide being used, clutching their pearls over accusations of war crimes. It couldn't be more clear. Again, Israel has been publishing video evidence for numerous war crimes. They just posted another one. Uh, I think it was today or yesterday where they had uh, they had uh, uh, gotten a bunch of civilians together and were humiliating them. That is a war crime. They just killed Wael uh, al-Dadu's um, son, who is a journalist. This is the same guy we've talked about numerous times on this show. Um, uh, his family has been targeted in several different attacks. Um, he himself was targeted and shot. His cameraman was killed. The guy just continues to go back to work. I don't know how he does it, but his son was just killed over the weekend. Um, I think we're up to maybe 109, 110 journalists who have been uh, targeted and murdered in this um I hate to call it a con. It's not a conflict. It's a genocide. Um, but that's a war crime. Targeting media is a war crime. And uh, the indiscriminate bombing of w women and children, the very clear attempts to starve Gaza. And th this is not me saying this, right? High level Israeli officials very openly discuss their intentions here. Benjamin Netanyahu was just talking about how his plan is to ethnically cleanse Gaza. He wants to force Gazans out and have other countries absorb them. They are openly discussing these actions. And so it's not the idea that anybody is uh, trying to pretend like that's not what this is, is absurd to me. So the Pope is not saying anything controversial. Um, it's very apparent. It's very clear. I just I don't I unfortunately, I think that um, there's I don't know that there's much that could stop uh, what's in motion. I know that that's very bleak. Um, I, it's just, it's, it, if a genocide is able to take place in broad daylight on the world stage with the entire globe watching it, live streaming it essentially, uh, and it's been going on for, uh, you know, over two months, three months, whatever it is, uh, I don't, I, I don't know what stops it. And that's, um, very sad. Uh, but I think that that's the reality of it. But what do you think, Adam? Do you think that the, the Pope is going to have any poll here? Actually? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah, it's I like because your optimism. we're, thank you. Um, well, it might not be a good thing at the end of the day, all things considered, but um, we live in a bubble, Misty. We're all very much into the news, but we forget sometimes not everybody is into the news, yeah, right? True. Yeah. So we get this impression that the world is being fed this story and seeing these destructions uh, live and everybody's watching the video. Everyone knows and can see what's happening. No, only the people who are paying attention do. Fair. But there are some people who just live with their heads in the sand. Uh, and then when their religious leaders start talking about it, they start asking questions and looking into it. So I think there might be a whole fresh wave of people who are about to experience what shall we call it a bit of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just hoping and praying that they emerge from the other side unscathed. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. And actually, yes, th that's that's fair. That is a fair point. You're right. We do. You and I exist in our. And as I just mentioned earlier with the guest ideas, um, I exist. We all everybody, each human being exists in their own little bubble. And in our little bubble, everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's watching it play out. And you're right. I mean, I have family members who uh, probably don't even know that, that there's anything happening at all. Or if they do, it's a very vague something about, oh, yeah, I heard something about Israel. Yeah. Uh, and there's probably quite a few people uh, who 
exist in, I'm kind of, I'm jealous of them actually a little bit sometimes. Uh, ignorance, I think in, in this situation might be bliss. Um, but yeah, I think that, and I think that also too, uh, we should mention that Joe Biden's Catholic. Um, so uh, that might be, although it's not really made a difference before. I think, uh, I think Biden is more Zionist than he is Catholic, but I hope it makes a difference. I really do. Like I am looking for any glimmer of hope for the people of Palestine uh, that we can find. Um, there isn't a lot, though. It is a really dire situation, um, and it just continues to get worse. Uh, more kids are being killed in various different ways. If they're not slaughtered by bombs, then they're starving to death, or they're you know getting amputations without anesthesia on dirty hospital floors. It is a really dire situation, and it's hard to watch it play out. And I want it to end. I want it to end right now. Uh, I'm just not sure that that's going to happen. But hopefully, the Pope. I mean, listen, as you mentioned, he's got some pull. I mean, he's kind of a big deal. Uh, so maybe, maybe uh, he can at least bring some more awareness to the situation to people who may not have been aware of what's going on. And uh, maybe that'll make a difference. I really hope so. I really hope so. Um, all right, Adam, thanks for bringing us the story. We will talk to you again tomorrow. As always, hang tight. We got Kyle Anslow and right after this, right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio's Hervoy Morich. Approximately 650,000 Ukrainian men aged 18 to 60 have left Ukraine for Europe since the start of the war. It's a tough spot if your country is being invaded. Uh, that's one thing and you're a, a male and a citizen. Um, but you know, if, the war, if it's a globalist war, I, I wouldn't want to participate <laughs> in these banker globalist wars. And most of them just uh, are. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, Nonprofits are on the front lines, ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing. Nurturing. Rescuing. Honoring. Protecting. Caring. Inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes, across all missions, has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. It's time to switch on today's News Talk Radio. Very entertaining. TNT. All right. Our guest today is Kyle Anslone. You know him. You love him. He's a frequent guest. Uh, he's the opinion editor of Antiwar.com and the news editor at the Libertarian Institute, both of which I often cite here on the show. Uh, he's also host of Conflicts of Interest, which you can find on YouTube, Rockfin, and Odyssey, as well as on all the podcast platforms. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Kyle Anslone underscore, and you can find him right here, right now on TNT. Kyle, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me back on, Misty. Yeah, of course. And as always, there's tons. I have like a gazillion tabs open because Kyle does great work all the time uh, covering lots of really important topics. And I want to start with more of like a general thing that you just recently wrote about on January 2nd. It kind of uh, is an overview of everything that we're about to discuss. Something I find super interesting, and it is an article at the Libertarian Institute. Uh, it's called Increasing Number of Americans See Foreign Policy as Top Issue. This makes me very happy. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so there was an Associated Press poll that found that four in 10 Americans 
when asked what five issues you want the government to work on next year, uh, four in 10 Americans named a foreign policy issue with uh, two in 10 Americans. So I think it was about 18% reporting that uh, they were concerned about the foreign interventions the U.S. was involved in. The number of people concerned about Ukraine actually ticked down from 6% to 4%. And so, you know, most of the concern was about the Middle East. Now, I, I paired that polling with another one I found. And of course, I've been covering this for the past couple months, Misty, that Biden's uh, poll numbers are in the toilet. I post about this a lot on Twitter whenever I find these polling numbers, particularly ones that have to do with foreign policy, because uh, when you do find polling on foreign policy, Biden Biden's polling very poorly around the low 30 percent where, where his approval rating also is. Uh, but that poll from USA Today found that the number of Latino Americans and the number of young Americans that support Trump is higher than the number in those two demographics that support Biden. Now, a portion of this is because of RFK Jr. has somewhat split uh, that support. But among Latino voters, I think Biden uh, won like 69% in 2020. And now Trump is pulling at 39% among that demographic. And of course, when it comes to young Americans in particular, Misty, we know that a lot of their current objections to the White House is based on Biden's uh, policy of full-throated support for Israel. Yeah, 100%. And that's why this makes me happy, I think. And I've spoken about this several times on this show. Generally speaking, foreign policy doesn't make the list when you're talking to people uh, in terms about what they're most concerned about. Um, I think a lot of people are mo most mostly focused on domestic issues, the economy, things like that, which I get it. But um, I mm -hmm. also wish that more people were able to make the connection between foreign policy and dom domestic policy. But I think that this poll, and that's why I was so excited about it, I think that this poll shows that people are really starting to um, shift, maybe not entirely their focus, to just foreign policy, as they shouldn't. I mean, you need to have a broad spectrum uh, look at things. But I do think it shows that people are paying more attention. And you're absolutely right. I think Biden is losing support. Um, uh, <laughs> it's kind of crazy to watch him just completely tank. Uh, and that's just going to continue. The more he supports Israel, I think that's just going to his poll numbers are going to continue to go down. So uh, I was very excited to see this. Okay, let's shift gears. I want to as you uh, we always do when you're on the show, I want to talk about North Korea. I, I feel like most people are not paying attention. There's been quite a bit of escalation here. So I wanted to go back to the last time you were on uh, was, I think, December 18th. And you had an article out from the next day. Uh, Kit. Kim Jong-un, oh, let me pull up the right one, uh, says ICBM test a quote-unquote clear signal to Washington. Um, so tell us a little bit about this, and then I want to talk about some recent developments that have happened. Yes. And so when I initially wrote this article, Misty, I was unaware of a recent development that happened was right around this time, the U.S. and South Korea were apparently conducting war games that were simulating the assassination of Kim Jong-un. And we only learned that those war games were conducted sometime before mid-December uh, when uh, the Ukrainian uh, not Ukrainian, excuse me, South Korean defense minister said that they conducted those drills and were considered, considering an assassination or nuclear option in North Korea. So uh, very, very provocative. But yeah, it, it does seem that Kim Jong-un is trying to, and, and spent the year 2023, particularly the second half of it, really screaming about how far the escalations have gone on the Korean Peninsula and how close uh, Pyongyang feels they are to a war breaking out 
Uh, they've said this repeated times. Various different officials have said it. Kim, his sister, uh, the representative at the United Nations, other foreign policy officials, they've put it out in their uh, international kind of state media, uh, KCNA, several times. So the North Koreans are very upset, and they're trying to signal that with you know these missile tests, as well as putting a uh, military satellite into orbit. I believe they completed that uh, around the end of November. Yeah, and as you just mentioned, we have since learned that there has been, uh, a, you have an article out from January 3rd. Again, Libertarian Institute, everybody, please go check it out. Support, subscribe, donate, share, all the stuff. Uh, but this one is U.S. and South Korea conduct training simulating assassination of Kim Jong-un. Now, I don't know if there's anything more um, provocative <laughs> than simulating the assassination of the North Korean leader. Uh, it's, this is crazy, Kyle. Right. And, and Misty, if you remember back to 2017 and how tense the, the situation was on the Korean Peninsula during the first year of the Trump presidency, well, this was the last year that the U.S. conducted these simulations, uh, you know, carrying out like U.S. special operations with South Korean special operations, uh, war games based on assassinating Kim Jong-un. And when Trump took away these war games, it opened the door for diplomacy. When Biden returned to office, he restarted them. And, you know, it's been a three-year cycle of escalations. Uh, but, you know, we've now seen it to the point where, uh, you know, there's some pretty serious live fire trainings going on on both sides of the border. Yeah, which you have an article out from January 4th discussing just that. U.S. and South Korea conduct live fire drills near North Korean border. Um, to me, and you and I have been, as I mentioned, you and I have been talking about the Korean Peninsula for some time now, um, watching it very closely. I feel like it's not getting near the coverage that it should be getting. But it really, is it just me or does it really feel like it is escalating at kind of a rapid pace here? It, it does feel like it's escalating at a pretty rapid pace at this point, Misty. Now, I would say... The good news is, is Kim Jong-un, the, the North Korean supreme leader, is not his father. He seems to be much more measured in understanding of how Washington operates. And I'm hoping that means that he is seeing the last year of the Biden administration, that Biden is really bought down in the Middle East and in Ukraine and really doesn't have an option to do a whole lot with Korea. So he's going to put a lot of satellites into orbit. He's going to test a couple ICBMs and a lot of other missiles. But he really understands that this situation could only boil to a certain level. Of course, the concern is, Misty, is that the West goes too far. You know, it's easy to think that the Biden administration understands that logistically it may really be impossible to conduct a war in North Korea right now, uh, given the the other things that the U.S. prioritizes in national security, such as war with Russia and China, and then, of course, trying to back Israel in the Middle East. They just may not have the weaponry uh, to conduct that war in North Korea. And certainly somebody like the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, would know that and say that in any White House meeting. But apparently, Missy, the White House is in such disarray, uh, the Secretary of Defense could be in the hospital for three days without the president knowing it. And so then I think we do run the risk of some lunatic like Eli Ratner or Victoria Newland or Brett McGurk, who all have very prominent roles in the White House, uh, pushing the White House to take a step that is completely insane. And, and you know, we have seen White House officials do this. If you remember uh, back in 2019 in the Hanoi summit, when the U.S. and North Korea were finally supposed to end the Korean War, John Bolton blew that up by getting in yes. the president's ear. And so, you know, just imagine if we have a John Bolton somewhere in the White House and does 
doesn't see the situation in North Korea as something that has to be kept on the bat burner, but sees it as an opportunity to finally deal with Kim Jong-un and to exploit the feebleness in the White House to go ahead and carry out that assassination strike. And, you know, even if we can't logistically fight the war afterwards, we'll figure that out when the time comes. I mean, there are there are real, real lunatics in the American government that we have to worry yes. about here, Misty. And so, you know, this is concerning. Yeah, 100%. And you're right. It, all it takes is one loose cannon to make one bad call and uh, everything could come crumbling down. So yeah, I think that for sure, uh, I, again, I appreciate your coverage on this. I don't see a whole lot of people talking about it or covering it really extensively. For sure, y'all, please keep an eye on this. It is, uh, I, obviously, our attention is focused elsewhere with various other uh, conflicts taking place around the globe. But this one, I think, is something that we really need to be paying attention to because it is really just like like that one bad decision away from completely exploding, which is terrifying. Um, okay, we got to take a quick break. We're going to get some headlines. Hang tight. We're going to be back here on today's News Talk. Go ahead. Go ahead. What the hell is this? Breaking news. TNT Radio News. Breaking news. Breaking news. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. House Republicans on Monday introduced resolutions to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for failing to comply with subpoenas, which GOP congressional leaders say violates federal law. Sheikh Hasina, the incumbent prime minister of Bangladesh, has secured her fifth term in office following a general election that was boycotted by the primary opposition party. The first U.S. lunar lander in over half a century left the Earth's grasp early Monday morning and set a course towards the moon. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab, or Getter? Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Yes, please. Like, subscribe, comment. All of that stuff really helps, especially algorithmically. Um, so all of those things, do all of those things. Um, okay, so we're here with Kyle Anslow, and we're doing a little foreign policy roundup. Uh, Kyle does great work at antiwar.com as well as the Libertarian Institute. Please go check both out and uh, support however you are able. Um, so I want to go back, a I want to switch gears. We're going to talk about Ukraine. I want to go back a little bit to December 26 because uh, this I thought was very interesting. Japan to send Patriot interceptors to the U.S., freeing up American supplies to send to Ukraine. Now, this was a little bit surprising to me given that, uh, you know, post-World War II, Japan has been pretty... Uh, chill, generally speaking, uh, this is a kind of a giant step away from that. So what is going on here? Yeah, so Misty, as you mentioned, Japan had a post-World War II constitution that really restricted what the J Japanese military was supposed to be. And slowly over time, particularly the past two decades, Tokyo has walked away from this. Uh, but this is a another major step. So previously, Japan would only export, and I think mainly to the U.S., components for weapons, but not fully assembled weapons. So Japan has made a change to their constitution to allow them to send fully assembled weapons to the U.S. Now, Japan's not going to send their weapons to war zone. That's still uh, prevented in the Japanese constitution. And so the, the loophole that Tokyo and Washington have worked out here is that Tokyo will send their Patriot missiles to the U.S., and then Washington will transfer theirs to Kiev. Now, uh, Japan does make uh, their own in-house Patriot missiles, uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, which I'm guessing is some kind of subsidy of Mitsubishi, uh, is contracts with Raytheon, our 
whatever their new acronym is now and uh they're licensed to make those weapons and so those will go into american stockpiles and i'm guessing a lot of them will be deployed you know kind of throughout the pacific and then the u.s will take their weapons and go ahead and, and transfer them to ukraine i mean crazy i can't believe the ukraine situation is still playing out um it has been and i mean you and i have talked about this it was an obvious uh, uh <laughs> it was obviously going to fail from the start there was really no chance uh and i think that we're starting to see as you mentioned in this piece uh from january 2nd uh i think ukraine is even starting to wake up to that and uh you say that ukrainians are turning against the war but are afraid to speak out um I feel like I can't imagine what it must be like to be in Ukraine. I know that there's also been a a great amount of distrust that has built up for their state media. Um, I think Dave DeCamp wrote a great article about that, perhaps. But uh, tell us about this, because obviously, I think um, we're in the United States, we're seeing Western media start to try to walk back the situation. They're starting to you know, ease back on the rhetoric. Um, we're starting to ease back on the funding and arming of Ukraine. But it feels it, it seems as if now even uh, Ukrainians are uh, recognizing that they have been totally screwed over here. Yeah, so there were two uh, very interesting reports, Misty, from right around the first of the year, like the second and third days of the year. Uh, one was from the Times of London and the other from the New York Times. The Times of London report said that Ukrainians were beginning to turn against the war and would like to seek a ceasefire, but were too afraid to speak out. The other report was from the New York Times, and it looked into uh, the Ukrainians' attention they paid towards and you know just how effective their state propaganda system is particularly their 24 7 news channel which is the only television news allowed in ukraine and they report that ratings for the news channel have plummeted and they're now lower than reality tv or whatever else uh whether other crap Zelensky allows to trickle out and then of course we have um you know, not only that, but the Ukrainians saying the reason they're not listening is because they're looking at overly rosy pictures painted on TV when they know the reality is far different uh, based on the number of Ukrainians not coming home or coming home injured. Yeah. Yes. And we've seen the videos of the um uh, I don't want to call them like elderly. They're not. But I mean, much older men. We're talking like in your maybe 40s and 50s. We've seen uh, that those are the types of people that they're now having to send out um, uh, onto the front lines. Because, I mean, as I've said many times, an entire generation of Ukrainian men was sacrificed on the altar of Western imperialism. It's horrific that that's the situation. That's reality, though. And it's I mean, it sucks that they are uh, now coming to that realization for themselves. Um, and we've seen, as I mentioned, we've seen uh uh, the support for arming and funding Ukraine really start to dwindle down. We've seen the Biden administration kind of struggling to even get, uh, you know, uh, I shouldn't say minuscule because it's it's ridiculous amounts of money. But, uh, you know, after sending, you know, billions of dollars, now they're struggling to get any money, uh, any money whatsoever. Uh, and you have an article out, too. I think that the uh, weaponry that the, we have sent there is also starting to dwindle as well. And you say that only a very small number of Leopard 2 tanks are operating in Ukraine. Um, so not only are they losing quite a bit of um, soldiers, but they're I mean, they're really running low on weaponry, are they not? Yeah, Misty. So the West has sent Ukraine a lot of tanks, old Soviet tanks, uh, older Leopard 1 tanks, and then several modern, a few dozen modern battle tanks. About 80 of those were Leopard 2 tanks and then a smaller number of Challenger 2 and Abrams uh, M1A1 tanks. And now 
the leopard tanks are supposed to be, I guess the leopard two were supposed to be the main tanks of the Ukrainian army. And now we have the Ukrainian government saying that only a very few are still operating in Ukraine. And worse, there's a manufacturing delay on the parts that they need to repair the ones that have been damaged in battle. And so it's not even like they could fit some up and get them to the battlefield soon. It seems like it's going to take quite a bit of time uh, before those uh, tanks will be ready for battle again. So yeah, supplies are getting strained in the West. Yeah, it's really, I mean, that is a desperate situation. And it is as North Korea, well, North Korea never really made the news, but Ukraine has certainly fallen off the mainstream media schedule. I mean, we saw, I think it was Kit Clarenberg that noticed that the Washington Post uh, has kind of removed it. If you go to their main page, every news uh, page has the little things across the top, the little tabs across the top for, you know, the big ticket uh, 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 news items for the day or whatever. And the war in Ukraine was prominently featured for a very long time. And just very quietly, that is disappeared from the Washington Post uh, main page um, as it has started to disappear from uh, the general news coverage in the mainstream uh, in the United States um, entirely, which is, I mean, it's really, it makes me angry. I mean, you and I have talked about this. Uh, it makes me angry because we were very clearly just using Ukraine as cannon fodder in this ridiculously unwinnable proxy war against Russia. Um, and it just, it makes me angry that so many Ukrainians have been uh, injured, killed, their lives have been upended and ruined their land has been, you know, demolished. It's just very frustrating to watch American foreign policy play out in real time. Um, okay, we got to take another quick break. Uh, hang tight. We're going to be right back here on today's News Talk. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Hi, I'm Ryan Blaney, a third generation race car driver. And we dedicate a lot of our time to going as fast as possible. But when my grandpa was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was a very unexpected bump in the road for us. It's important to notice if older family members are acting differently, experiencing problems with their memory, or having trouble with routine tasks. Early detection of Alzheimer's can give your family time to explore support services, make a plan for the future, and access available treatments. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. Misty Winston on today's News Talk Radio TNT. All right. We are here joined by Kyle Anslone of Antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute. Please go check out both organizations, um, support, donate, subscribe, share, all that stuff. They do fantastic work um, over there at both of those places. So, okay, let's shift. Let's talk to uh, let's talk about Israel-Palestine, obviously. 
the genocide continues. So I wanted to start because this is something that you have been talking about from jump. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you've been talking about it really since day one. And that is um, the uh, the very clear um, struggle that Netanyahu was facing even before October 7th. Uh, he was facing corruption charges. There was the whole judicial fiasco, all of that stuff happening. Um, and really, Netanyahu has every reason to want to continue this thing for as long as humanly possible. He is facing an immense amount of pressure at home uh, from many people who want to see him step down. There's been reports that um, people were, are saying after the uh, situation with Gaza is over that he needs to step down. Um, and you have a piece out from uh, January 5th, this one at antiwar.com october 7th probe ignites tensions between military and netanyahu allies so what is going on here kyle well isn't this just telling misty that the netanyahu administration does not want an investigation into what happened on october 7th <laughs> you know netanyahu has really deflected blame personally and his government you know acknowledges that were that there, there must have been failures but you know really hasn't looked to hold anybody to account yet and the israeli military i think feels as though they're being thrown under the bus kind of slowly because uh, the information coming out from Haaretz and the New York Times in particular that, you know, the Israeli uh, least intelligence community had the battle plans a year before the attack and just thought it wasn't possible for them to uh, come out with it. They had sources from within Gaza telling them that Hamas was preparing for a big attack. They had those uh, female spotters, the IDF. Uh, units who are there to monitor Gaza telling their commanders that, hey, you know, it seems like Hamas is up to something that's not quite normal. And they were completely ignored. And then just the day before the attack, Haaretz reports that the IDF had all the information they needed to at least, you know, start preparations and to warn the Nova Music Festival concert goers where, you know, most of the Israeli citizens that were killed seem to have been killed. Uh, if not a majority, uh, you know, a plurality of the places that, you know, the attacks happened and killed civilians, it seems the uh, 240 killed there were the greatest number. And so, you know, those deaths could have been, if not entirely prevented, at least curbed. And the Netanyahu government doesn't want to probe in this. And the reason I knew after October 7th that Netanyahu would have to fight this war and would have to fight this war to an ethnic cleansing of Gaza is because supporting Hamas has been Netanyahu's policy for decades. Yes. So, you know, Misty, imagine something like uh, you know, Ronald Reagan and, and Jimmy Carter or something like that still being president on 9-11 and was their policy of backing the Mujahideen, you know, Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan against the Soviets that blew up in their faces on, you know, that then they would have been directly responsible. But because, you know, Bush had taken office, what Americans said just nine months before, like that's some kind of excuse that he wasn't responsible for. But Netanyahu has been the, you know, majority uh, you know, for the most of the time, the past two decades, the prime minister of Israel. And yeah. so this is his policy. And I mean, other people within the Israeli government support it. I'm not trying to say like, oh, it's all Netanyahu. Everybody else is opposed to this. It's widely supported. But Netanyahu is is the tip of the spear on this policy. And so he, you know, in a lot of ways owns what happened on October 7th. 
hundred percent. And for anybody that is unfamiliar with what Kyle's talking about, or if you're like, what are you talking about? Netanyahu doesn't support Hamas. Yeah, he sure did. Lots of times financially, politically, you name it. And in fact, um, Scott Horton and Connor Freeman, Connor's actually going to be on the show tomorrow. And he is Kyle's co-host on Conf conflicts of interest. Uh, they did a massive write-up going through all different kinds of um, uh, direct quotes and all, a whole host of things. Um, and I think that's probably up at the Libertarian Institute. I'm sure if you go to Scott Horton's author page, it'll probably be one of the uh, top uh, entries there. Um, but it is a massive write-up of all of the different ways and all the, a, a, a whole host of evidence that supports the claim that Kyle just made, that Netanyahu and, as he mentioned, the Israeli government in general have for a very long time been supporting Hamas. They've been using it as kind of a way to uh, splinter support for other Palestinian resistance groups and things like that. So, yeah, this is... Uh, and the whole October 7th thing and the idea that Israel didn't know it was coming, this is one of the most sophisticated militaries on planet Earth with easily one of the most sophisticated surveillance um, apparatuses on planet Earth. Uh, they sell their their surveillance uh, software and things to countries across the globe. Um, so the idea, I've been saying that from jump, the idea that they didn't know this was coming or that they weren't, I mean, it took hours for them to act. It, it's, it's fishy to say the least. And those questions certainly need to be asked. There's no question about it. So um, obviously Netanyahu, as you, as we just talked about, is facing some pressure. Also, we see Biden uh, facing some pressure. I guess we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier when we were talking about the uh, the interest in foreign policy. But we're also starting to see um, political appointees, interns, all kinds of stuff uh, openly speaking out against it, um, some anonymously, but whatever, I get that. Uh, but you have an article up from January 3rd, uh, Biden political appointee resigns over president's support for Israel. And this is not a one-off, but tell us about this one situation. Yeah, and, and Misty, you know, for people speaking out anonymously, I do think that there's maybe a little bit, you know, something kind of nefarious there, uh, not intentionally, but, you know, if you're the Biden administration and or the Biden campaign and you have your lower level staffers speaking out uh, anonymously and condemning the president over his Israel policy, what maybe aren't they doing or, you know, kind of slacking on or, you know, even working against the president at the lower levels? So, you know, there could be some concern there. So there's nothing in, you know, if you're going to speak out and the only way you feel like you could do it is anonymously, at least sign on to something. That way the president knows there's a lot to say and has to worry about that to say and, you know, how many people are really against him. But uh, this particular letter was a political appointee for the uh, Department of Education. He was a specialist in relieving student loan debt, I guess, a Palestinian American and somebody who worked for the Biden campaign in 2020. And he resigned, uh, called it a genocide and said they had to step down. Uh, I, I found him on Twitter and followed him where he uh, finally posted his full resignation letter. Initially, it was just given to, I guess, a couple mainstream outlets. And so if you read the whole thing, it's very scathing. And uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people within the Biden administration and the Democratic Party that are really against what the president is doing here. Yeah, 100%. And I think that uh, we're going to continue to see, as I said, we're going to continue to see his poll numbers drop um, and dissent within the uh, administration grow as he continues this full-throated support for a literal genocide, um, which is good. There should be more uh, people dissenting. I'm sure that some people are afraid. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of people don't want to lose their jobs and all of that stuff. But uh, to me, I think that there's just I don't know how you stand by and say nothing as a genocide is going on. That's mind blowing to me. Um, OK, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, a couple different things um, in terms of, um, uh, you know, where we stand uh, with 
you know, deaths and the way that things are going on. Uh, one of the more horrendous situations, um, this is an article from December 29th. Over a thousand children in Gaza have had one or both legs amputated since October 7th. Now that is a horrific statistic. I struggled to even read that sentence out loud. And we should mention too, that this is not just having one or both legs amputated. This is oftentimes without anesthesia um, on a hospital floor. You know, they've been orphaned. They don't have any family or support systems around them. This is genuinely horrific. I just, it it, it blows my mind um, that this is taking place. Like I said, and there are, there are people out there who support this. It's insane to me. Uh, but tell us about this. Cause this is, uh, this is, just one of really uh, a, a ton of just genuinely atrocious uh, statistics that are, that are coming out of Gaza. Yeah, Missy, and just to say here, there are some articles that that I have written since October 7th that have been pretty hard to write. This is yeah. one of the hardest ones. And, you know, afterwards, I need to go outside and spend a little time with my dogs or something. But it, it just being that hard to write for me being in, you know, the United States of America, I, I can't imagine what it's like. Like, I've I've tried to to empathize with what the Palestinians are going through, and it just it, it's the the horrors are beyond what I am capable of trying to put myself through. So I I just I can't imagine what it must be like for the parents to have to watch their kids go through that. And maybe you know at their bedside, their only source of comfort as they're going through this uh, amputation without anesthesia or something like this. So I have seen a lot of numbers going around online about the number of childhood amputations in Gaza. I spent a lot of time going through uh, UN official statements on this, and the only number I could find that that one UN official gave, uh, he works for UNICEF, his name is Elder, and he said that uh, one thousand, more than 1,000 Gazan children have one or both legs amputated. I have no idea why they would count just legs and not arms and legs, other than it's maybe a mobility issue or something like that, where if you lose a leg, you're definitely going to need an ambulance to transport you to somewhere else. Uh, yeah. There, I did not see a number on the number of children who have undergone undergone amputations without anesthesia. And, and to be honest, Missy, I don't know why anybody would ever track that. You know why I mean? I don't think that the doctors are writing down, we did this surgery without anesthesia. Maybe they are, maybe that will all be compiled one day, but that just might not be a stat that people are keeping. And then uh, I did read and included in the article testimony from some of the doctors, including them saying that they were doing up to six of these amputations on children every night. And so I can't imagine what kind of trauma it, it inflicted on these doctors as well who you know had to, to to do this and you know obviously saving a child's life and doing everything they can for the child but you know misty in a way you have to wonder if it's even that helpful i mean if this is a child in northern gaza and you cut one or both of their legs off what are the chances that they're going to make it somewhere where they're going to be you know, receive the treatment they need that it doesn't get affected and they don't die, you know, from some sort of uh, infection or sepsis or, you know, there's no bathrooms anywhere uh, in in a lot of the regions of Gaza. I mean, this is a huge issue, cleanliness and all of this. So um, it's just it's it's unimaginable what these uh, children are going through. And I, I can't even begin to put myself in that position. 
Yeah. And we know, I mean, you're right. There's no, um, uh, as far as I know, there's no statistics on how many are taking place without anesthesia, but we know that that's happening. There is no question about it. In fact, that there was uh, on November 21st, there was the one report of a doctor who was forced to amputate his own son's leg without anesthesia and his son died. And um, that's, I can't, I'm a mom. I can't, I can't, like, I can't, there's no way I can even attempt to comprehend what that means, what that is, what that, I, it's just unfathomable to me. And we also know that, um, as you mentioned in an article out from December 21st, there are no functional hospitals remaining in Northern Gaza. Um, so as you mentioned, in addition to there being, uh, it's just, uh, 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 very unclean. There's dead bodies decomposing in the streets. There is a lack of sanitary bathrooms. There's no showers. It is a horrific situation. Then you add to that um, uh, with all of the injured, all of the dead, all of the people who are trying to find safe haven. There's now no functional hospitals remaining in northern Gaza. So tell us about that, Kyle. Yeah. So what that means is that the buildings that were once hospitals in northern Gaza, there's maybe one or two people who were like voluntarily trained as nurses uh, running around and trying to provide care to people in beds on floors. The UN officials who arrived at these scenes say it's unlike anything they've ever experienced in their life. There's wounded people laying in the streets around the hospitals. You can't even walk around the hospital wards because there's so many people laying on the floor. And and everybody there is just begging for water because there is nothing to drink. And, yeah. and so, I, I mean, it sounds like a, a scene beyond something that you would see in, in the most apocalyptic, you know, movie you're watching. I, I mean, I can't even, uh, again, imagine what it would must be like to walk through, you know, a hospital, one wall is blown off and there's people just laying everywhere on the ground, uh, missing legs, missing arms, bleeding, uh, and they're all just, you know, crying out for help, for water, for food, and, and nobody has anything to provide them. It, it seems like, you know, people who are are literally laying in hospital beds with multiple broken limbs. And so, you know, they have one arm and leg suspended, can't get any water. I, I mean, it, it's an absolute horror. Yeah. And I like, uh, again, I'm like you, I, um, I shouldn't, but I do. I often try to put myself in this, in the shoes of a Palestinian person, which obviously is impossible. It is, there's no way that I, from, you know, my very comfortable home in Ohio and the United States could even begin to imagine what they're dealing with. But I try to at least, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, put myself someplace and to empathize, right. To, 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 to figure out what that must be like. And as you just mentioned, I, like, I, I imagine it's overwhelming, not just, just the uh, the constant violence, the constant bombings, the constant fear, but the the sensory overload, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the people screaming, the kids crying, uh, the smells of decomposing bodies and the blood and all of the things that I'm sure are they're just being bombarded with. It is it's almost too much for me to even bear from my comfortable house in Ohio, even just to think about. It is I can't imagine what it is to be living that every day. Oh, and not to mention hearing the drones constantly overhead. We had Vanessa Belion uh, a while back and she actually lived in Gaza for a time and she has video um, of what the drones sound like when they're flying overhead. And that is constant. Like that is a constant presence in Gaza. And so to be to have to hear that and to it, it, not in addition to everything else that you're dealing with, in addition to the sight sounds and smells of the people in agony, the people dying, the people who are dealing with an immense amount of grief, it's overwhelming just to even um, you know talk about it here with you. I can't imagine what it's like to live that 
and it's um uh it's just very frustrating that it continues. So uh, really quickly, I also I mean we only have a few minutes left, but really quickly, I also want to just touch on the fact that rights groups warn war in Gaza, most dangerous situation for journalists ever seen. Obviously, I've been talking about this um a, a lot on this show. I think we're up to like 109, 110 journalists who have been killed now. Talk a little bit about this because I think that this is something that's not we need to talk about this more. Right. And Misty, just yesterday, I believe January 7th, uh, two journalists, one Al Jazeera journalist and one AFP journalist were killed in an Israeli airstrike when the, the car they were uh, traveling in was blown up. And I believe the Al Jazeera reporter uh, was the son of their bureau chief. In Gaza. Yeah. 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 And, and this is, I believe, the second son he has lost in this conflict so far. So uh, it, it does seem that there is if not a systematic targeting of journalists in Gaza, Misty, at least, you know, the nature of the job of journalists, it has, you know, put them uh, in a position in Israel where, you know, the indiscriminate bombing has just slaughtered them at unbelievable rate. Uh, I think the committee to protect journalists says the number of journalists killed in Gaza is 75. I have seen that 109 number published on Al Jazeera. I'm not sure what the discrepancy is, but either way, uh, the, the numbers are absolutely horrific and, and way too high and yeah. you you know misty the the unbelievable part of course is the biden administration as this is going on and as they have julian assange locked up in the belmarsh prison are complaining about you know the rights of journalists around the world and how they need to be protected uh, while yeah. they are being slaughtered <laughs> in gaza nothing like the hypocrisy of the united states i love it uh all right kyle thanks so much for coming on the show we will have you back soon as always um i love our chats despite the fact that that is about horrific stuff but uh always good uh to get updated on foreign policy so okay we'll be back tomorrow with connor freeman as julian assange says learn challenge act now and don't go anywhere timothy shea is right after this on today's news talk